You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of all things medical and psychological. Happy New Year! <laughs> I know that sounds a little bit weird, mid-February, but it's my first show for 2018, which feels quite exciting. And what a big show we have today. Let me tell you all about it. I'm Dr Autonomy, and today on the panel with us, we have our lovely, trusty Miss Medic, our local GP, Dr Malice, our child psychiatrist, and we've got a special guest, Zara Thompson, music therapist. So let me tell you why we've got her on. There is about to be, starting in March, a big randomised control trial on singing for people with dementia. I've been calling it the Dementia Choir in my own head when I think and talk about it, but I don't know if that's the correct term, so we'll check with Zara later. But uh, Zara is a registered music therapist and she's also a PhD candidate. And she's worked with a huge variety of people, people with disabilities, children who've experienced trauma, people seeking asylum. But most recently, she has been running a choir for people who suffer from dementia as well as their carers. And the pilot study was so incredibly successful that all the participants just didn't want the choir to end. So it's still going and Zara is still running it. And there's about to be a big RCT to continue it and actually document some of the benefits that have been uh, noticed. Things like stimulating memories, stimulating emotions and stimulating social connection. It's a fascinating story. So you won't want to miss our interview with Zara today. And as well as that, we have got a segment later on in the show today from Dr Malice about music in at the other end of life. Dr Malice is going to be talking about melodies and music for enhancing infant development. So we are really talking about one end of the life spectrum to the other today. And of course, we'll have some news stories of the latest things that have been happening. So grab a cup of coffee and join us as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Give me the news, I got a bad case of loving you No pills gonna cure my ill, I got a bad case of loving you I never tire of that song, you'd think I would after all these years but I still love it <laughs> Good morning, good morning Miss Medic, how are you? I'm well-ish, I've had oh. a bit of a cough Mm. I think there's a lot of bugs going around. So if you're a bit sniffly and snotty and coughing, I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Me too. It seems early in Doctors the Doctors get sick too. Um, so, yeah, make sure, keep your fluids up, take it easy and see your trusty GP if you are getting worse. I thought of you the other day. I had a client who was sick and sort of, you know, sneezing and blowing their nose all through the session. And, you know, you're locked in a room, not locked, but in a closed room. You don't lock the door, do you? That would no, be I don't. Weird. Like once it did lock accidentally, it was really awkward. But anyway, um, <laughs> I felt like I'd locked them in. Was, yeah. Um, you will stay. And I thought, wow, closed room for an hour, mm. you know, with someone with coming someone and sneezing. And I thought of you and I thought, that's what you do all day long. You yes. must get sick all the time. Well, no, I don't anymore, actually, which was, and it's um, quite a challenge to my self-concept when I do get sick because I see <laughs> myself as this incredibly robust, 
uh, GP because I've been a GP for 10 years now. So I feel Amazing. like I have been exposed to every bug there is. But occasionally I will succumb also. But mm. generally I think GPs end up with very robust immune systems as a result of the amount of mm. exposure we do get. Makes sense. Mm. Dr Malice, how are you feeling? Robust. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more than just about exposure to the bugs. It's exposure to medical school where we think we are, uh, well, we were trained as almost gods. You know, the, the, the well, some makers of, you, of decision. back in the day. <laughs> well, back in the day, yes, it was paternalistic in my day. Mm, yeah. It's changed since then. Yeah. But so it's more than just, I think, the exposure. It's the very selection process. You get into medical school and then you think you've really it for the rest of life. And it comes as a shock that <laughs> we're human it really that the dawning of that whether it's through illness or other unfortunate experiences that humans as humans we do have mm. uh, it's a lifelong lesson mm. it is true. and zara thompson thank you for joining us today no worries thank you for having me i'm looking forward to our segment later on music and dementia and i think the track that we're going to play today comes from you is that right that's right i've tried to select one that will be I guess, representative of our choir that we're running at the moment, but something that was a bit cheery because we often sing some songs that can be a bit sad or, you know, a bit of a nostalgic stroll down memory lane. So I've gone with something that's a little bit more uplifting and a bit cheesy for your Sunday morning. (laughs) Can't wait. (laughs) Wish I could have a music therapist choose our tracks every week. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we get into all of that, um, as we always do, we're going to start up with a bit of a sort of wrap up of topics. And Miss Medic, I think you had a bit of an update for us about pap tests or pap smears. I don't actually... Well, they're no longer, interestingly. Oh, well, there you go. The Tell terminology has changed. So the way that we screen for cervical cancer, which has been up until recently the pap smear, um, has changed as of the 1st of December last year. So we now do a different test for our cervical screening. So... Uh, the new test involves, It's unfortunately, it's the same process. We're still taking a sample from the cervix. Um, so the process is very much the same. But instead of looking for changes, cellular changes on the cervix that we know if left could become cervical cancer in the future, we're looking one step before that. We're looking for the presence of certain subtypes of the human papillomavirus, which we know is the cause of those cervical cellular changes that could, if left untreated, become cervical cancer. So the good news is about around that is that it's a better test. We are picking up um, more of the... We're, pick, we're picking up cases that are, are more likely to become cervical cancer, whereas what we were used to do is pick up some cellular changes. Someone would have to have more investigations and um, more invasive things happen as a result. And the chances, if they were actually a... This was caused by other subtypes of human papillomavirus that are not so cancer-causing, they wouldn't have needed all of those tests. Uh-huh. So we're, we're really honing in on the subtypes that we know are more risky and therefore we're getting, um, and therefore we're getting much more accurate results. 
Now, that sounds kind of academic in a way, but the good news <laughs> for women out there is that the what <clears throat> was every two years is now every five years. So mm. that's the good news. So if you test negative for the high-risk subtypes of human papillomavirus on your screening test, then you don't need to go back for another another cervical screening test for five years. Wow. So that's the good news. I had heard some rumours about sort of the recommendations changing and I got a text message actually the other day from my GP saying, you're due for your pap smear, pap test. I don't know what they call it. Cervical screening test. That's not what I said in the text though. Maybe it did. (laughs) Um, And I remember thinking, oh, I know something has changed. Does this mean I don't need to go in anymore? Yes. So I still need to go in, but then I won't need to go back if the results are negative. Yes. So you're due for your first cervical screening test two years after your last pap yeah but if this one is negative then it'll be five years a vital screening test just yes. rolls off the tongue doesn't it well yeah it's <laughs> going to take a little while for us to get out of the habit of calling things pap smears the other thing is that it doesn't start now until you're age 25 whereas we used to start at 18 mm. um so the start <sighs> is now 25 so there are some certain circumstances where the under 25s may be screened so um if you have already started having pap smears prior to this change in tests and they were abnormal, then you should discuss with your GP. Chances are you will have to have a test done before you turn 25. Or if you did start having intercourse under the age of 14 or if you're a victim of sexual abuse, then then you might start earlier. But in general, it's starting at 25, which is good Mm. as well there's another thing that's changed with the new screening test that i thought i would just draw people's attention to because we know that about two-thirds of all cervical cancer are found in women who've never been screened or are more than 18 months overdue for a screening test so there's a large proportion of these unscreened people only about 60 percent of women are actually up to date with their screening tests so because it, And there's lots of reasons why people mm. may not want to have their tests done, what was the pap smear, um, and a lot of it can be due to, you know, the process, you know, oh, finding it really uncomfortable, bad experience in the past, etc. So if you are over the age of 30 and you are more than two years late for a pap test or a screening test, you can speak to your doctor about doing a self-collected test in which you take the swab yourself. Mm. Um, You have to see your doctor who will arrange the test and and tell you how it needs to be done. But that's another option. And I think this is a really important one because because of the cancers really arising in this unscreened population, any move towards getting some of those women involved in screening is going to make a massive difference to the amount of cervical cancer mm. we see. So if you are the, in that sort of category of being over the age of 30, more than two years late for what was the PAP test, the current screening test, then speak to your GP because you can do a self-collected test. Now, this isn't, it's probably not as good as when your doctor does it. So it's not something that we say is for everyone, but for those people that are otherwise really not going to do the test, this is a much better option than not doing it at all. It's an amazing advance. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we we need to keep in mind that it, we need to be flexible sometimes in medicine about when there are people that, for whatever reason, 
can't adhere to what our ideal is, can we shift? Can we meet? Can we still protect these mm. individuals? You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr Autonomy, Miss Medic, Dr Malice and our special guest, Zara Thompson, and we're just talking about the changed recommendations for cervical screening tests. The old pap smear. Uh, last quick question about that. It also brings to mind the, is it called the HPV vaccine? Yes, Tell that's me about right. that and how that links in. Yeah, so look, the human papillomavirus virus. Uh, vaccine started oh, it's probably about 10 years ago I might be slightly wrong with those dates it might even be more than that gosh because I'm, I'm much old. older than I, I look yeah <laughs> thank you uh, which I'm sure is clear over radio um, that yeah so the Gardasil vaccine mm. which is the human papillomavirus vaccines which was yeah started some time ago given to girls Initially, it's now for boys as well, but initially it was given to girls in their teenage years at high school in order to provide them some prevention of and protection for these high-risk subtypes of the human papillovirus, exactly what we're looking for mm. at the time of um, the screening test. So that has made a huge difference in the amount of uh, cervical cancer, um, but... If you are over the age of 40, you may not have had this done. There was a catch-up program for a period of time for, I think, women aged between 22 and 30 to have it done. I can't remember the exact dates. But, yes, we definitely see a lot more cervical cancer than we used to. A lot less. Uh, Sorry? A lot less. Oh, sorry, a lot to, less yeah. cervical cancer than we used to because of the vaccine and because of screening. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting area because this is one of the um, only cancers that we've really been able to hone that it has a virus as its cause mm. and then is vaccine preventable. So it's pretty amazing, it's pretty really. remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. And an Australian <clears throat> discovery. Wow. Mm. Go us. Yes. <laughs> Um, thank you for that update. Really important stuff, Miss Medic. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And we are back on Radiotherapy on 3 RRR with myself, Dr Autonomy, Miss Medic, Dr Malice and our special guest, Zara Thompson. And we are going to talk to Zara a bit more now. So just in case you missed the introduction, let me tell you a little bit about her. Zara is a music therapist, registered music therapist, and she's also doing a PhD at the University of Melbourne. She works with people in a number of different areas, including people with disabilities, children who've experienced trauma, and also people seeking asylum. And her PhD research is focused on people who have dementia and their caregivers who are participating in therapeutic choirs. And even that phrase, therapeutic choirs, just immediately sparks my interest and I want to hear more. Um, The research project's part of a larger uh, randomised control trial being led by her supervisors at the University of Melbourne. And we're going to be talking a lot more about the RCT in a moment. In case you know anyone with dementia who might want to take part, there is still time to get involved. But firstly, Zara, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's our great pleasure. So... You're a music therapist. Obviously, working with music and choirs is uh, not much of a surprise. But how did you become interested in the area of dementia as a music therapist? Well, 
I guess um, dementia research and practice in music therapy is gaining a lot of um, popularity is probably not the right word but a lot of traction at the moment Um, it's a very hot topic there's a lot of research to indicate that instances of dementia will increase um, very significantly in the next couple of years due to the ageing population. And so it's a bit of, I guess you could say, dementia research is in vogue at the moment. There's a lot of different studies that are going on, and particularly the interest in music and dementia. And my interest in that, I guess it wasn't really an area that I set out to work in. I, My main source of income is working with people with disabilities, um, generally older adults who've experienced trauma and children in the family violence sector as well. So it was a bit of a step away from where I was working, but my supervisor who supervised me at uh, during my master's course at the University of Melbourne, um, she is involved in this RCT and her and another one of my teachers from Melbourne Uni, um, so Dr Imogen Clark and Dr Jeanette Tamplin, they ran a pilot project a couple of years ago while I was a student. And the pilot project was basically the birth of this bigger study and looking at how singing in a choir can be beneficial for people who have dementia and their caregivers who are family members as well. And what happened was that pilot study came to an end and the members of the choir were adamant that they wanted to continue. They mm. refused to stop and unfortunately <laughs> they, um, that wasn't planned. Well, I, I should say fortunately, I guess that's a really great outcome for the choir. So having worked with Jeanette before, um, my minor thesis at during my master's was on another project that Jeanette ran, which was uh, therapeutic choir singing for people who have Parkinson's disease. Oh. And so I'd worked with her a bit in that and she um, she got in touch and asked me if I'd like to take over the facilitation of that initial choir. And then they got the funding for the RCT and through our talks and, you know, just being involved in that choir really opened my eyes to the ability of people who have dementia to continue to participate despite everything else that's mm. going on around them and the what I see is intrinsic value of being in a choir that really piqued my interest and so when the opportunity came up to do a PhD with Jeanette um, I jumped at the chance it's really exciting and I'm really looking forward to learning more. Yeah, I don't have any trouble understanding why it um, sparked your interest. I mean, what a fascinating area. I was thinking this morning, actually, as I was um, thinking about the interview with you today about potential links between, you know, therapeutic benefits for dementia and singing in a choir. And I guess where my mind went first was the experience that I have frequently where I listen to a piece of music, you know, that perhaps I haven't heard in many years. And when it comes on the radio or I hear it, I'm sort of flooded with memories of of a time when I was listening to the song before. So, you know, on the drive-in today, I was thinking about a couple of songs that uh, one of them was The Point to sisters jump and another one was aha's take on me and whenever I hear those two songs the memories that immediately come into my mind are me and my mum dancing around the lounge room you know with me as a kid like I won't I won't talk about how old I was but um (laughs) but so I guess the that concept of music triggering specific memories makes a lot of sense to me. Is that part of the thinking in the dementia choir, behind the dementia choir? Absolutely. And what we know from research as well is that music is one of the last things that remains for people in later stage of dementias as well. So 
for people who've lost a lot of other abilities, maybe they're, um, they can no longer talk or initiate speech, initiate movements without a lot of support, um, and they might not engage with people around them, but you put on a song that they recognise as a familiar song, and all of a sudden they light up. And you might have seen clips on it floating around on the internet, on Facebook and things like that, of people um, in nursing homes, and someone brings in an iPod and they pop the, them on. And that person just lights up and starts singing and talking and reminiscing about that time. And that's, you know, music, we don't quite understand how the brain works. Obviously, we're really at the um, the start of that research. But there is a lot of research to show that music is one of the last remaining things for people in that late stage of dementia. And that it's really strongly linked to memory and also emotion. So in our society, particularly Western society, but in other societies as well, music is a really significant part of our culture. Um, we use music at really significant points in our life as well. Obviously, birthdays, happy birthday is a really great example of that. You know, that's something that permeates our lives throughout the lifespan and also at weddings and funerals. So music in itself, not just the memory, but is also often tied to really significant moments of emotion. You're listening to Radiotherapy and we're talking to Zara Thompson, who's a music therapist running a choir for people with dementia. You've mentioned a couple of ways that the choir is of benefit. You know, one is about, I guess, triggering some memories because, as you said, music is one of the last things to go. But you also talked about stimulating emotions and I think you've also spoken about that concept of sort of, I guess, the phrase that comes to my mind is the social connection associated with a, with a choir. Can you speak to some of the other benefits that you've noticed in facilitating the choir? Absolutely and I think I would say probably the biggest benefit is that social aspect the fact that people can come together and make music together do something we call it normalizing behavior so a lot of the feedback that we've had from the caregivers who come along to the choir as well and I should emphasize that it's not just a choir for people who have dementia but also their their family members so it'll be either a husband or wife or a child or grandchild in some cases who come along and join in the singing as well and having that music as a form of social support is really important. We know that singing together in a group helps release a lot of endorphins and the, I think they call it the cuddle hormone, oxytocin, Uh which is a bit cute, um, which helps to stimulate bonding and maybe helps to speed up that bonding process as well. So some of the feedback that I've had is that it's a bit different to your standard support group where you might go and the focus is talking about the deficits of the illness, um, talking about all the things that are going wrong, whereas coming to a choir, the focus is really just having fun together and that normalising behaviour. And I guess you could say it evens out the playing field a bit as well. It's no longer... it In a way, it dismantles that caregiver, care-recipient dynamic and it's no longer having a person who's playing one role or another, but everyone's singing together equally. And for an hour, I guess... You know, you get to forget that very well-worn dynamic that's going on at home and remember a different part of yourself and a different part of the person you're caring for. Absolutely. There's um, a lot of our choir members uh, have had a really strong musical background. A lot haven't as well, I should say, that it's not just for people who are musical or who have sung before. Anyone can join in. But we do have a lot of people who've said that they've had, you know, a history of Um, music maybe they were performers when they were younger and now they can come back and reclaim that part of their identity as well Sarah I am a sucker for a story have you got any anecdotes about particular members of the choir or stuff that you've noticed yeah absolutely I've got um, a really lovely story actually of 
a couple of our members who come together. So it's a mother-daughter duo and the mother who has dementia was a wonderful opera opera singer in her heyday. She sung for Australian Opera (laughs) and she obviously raised a very musical household so her daughter's very musical as well and they come along and sing together every week and what her daughter was telling me was that when her mother was diagnosed with dementia she was still participating in a few different musical groups and what happened was that as soon as her diagnosis became public those groups suddenly became I guess inaccessible to her so inaccessible in the sense uh, the physical sense that when she would go she would need a lot of support a to get there to remain on task and to kind of be shown what's going on which was something that people there weren't necessarily um skilled or understanding of how best to support her in that sense and then also inaccessible in the sense that it really created a there was a lot of stigma around her diagnosis and her daughter has told me, which is kind of heartbreaking really, of running into people from those groups and then kind of talking to her even though her mum's standing next to her and completely ignoring her or treating her like she's, you know, a, a child or something like that, which I think there was a big expectation from some of those people that she wouldn't be able to participate. But coming to our choir, I think it's really proved that wrong because she's probably one of the leaders of our choir. You know, she's... Um, so skilled in her singing and she remembers everything she remembers all of the songs and you know sometimes it's amazing her daughter says I don't know how she can't remember what I just told her but the accompanist will start playing and then all of a sudden she'll be singing songs that she hasn't sung for years and there's something really powerful in there I think about that oh what a story Mm. look what I love when I hear that is that it's such a a shift in focus it's more about what this person um who happens to have dementia can do rather than what they can no longer do and I think that um it's we're too quick to sort of once someone has a, a diagnosis of a dementing illness to look at their deficits and not hold on to the things that they're still able to do they are still people they still have wants and needs and emotional um and emotional needs and i think that's so lovely that this is a real shift about what looking at what someone can still do Absolutely. And I think we really underestimate that capacity of people to still engage. And even yesterday in our rehearsal, one of the choir members said, when I was telling them I was coming on here and talking about the project, she said, why aren't they doing more to treat us? And I think historically, a lot of the research is focused on cures Mm. and on early prevention and things like that. But there's not a lot of resources out there for people who have dementia and who are living with Um, the reality of dementia to participate in there's certainly some but I think there's a big need for more especially as you know it's only going to increase Mm-hmm. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking to Zara Thompson about a choir for people who have dementia and also their carers. Dr Malice, you wanted to ask a question. Well, just as you're introducing about carers, a personal anecdote. Uh, over 20 years ago, my late father had Alzheimer's and he actually played piano during his lifetime. Now, as slowly you described, many facets of his personality started to fade his interest in music increased and towards the very end when he barely, in fact, in the end he couldn't recognise me. However, when I visited and started humming a song, he would join in and as you said, he would light up and we had a musical conversation. And that was really 
the old father that I knew where we could hum together and he would have no memory obviously of the experience but it sparked my interest in fact of the power of music and singing together and the segment I'll do later today is in in homage to him really because that's where it all started I mean as a child psychiatrist I work at the other end of the life cycle but that personal experience has so imprinted on me and I'll mention some of the understanding from the way the brain works of why a carer and a sufferer have got a unique bond especially if they're next of kin Yes. That's a different level of carer and why that goes even deeper than the caring carer uh, and the sufferer and why the body resonates in certain ways with carers versus carers who are next of kin. Right. Wow. Mm. That's interesting. That's a beautiful experience. Thank you for sharing it. It's lovely. What's your experience of the carer's participation, Zara? Um, It's been overwhelmingly positive. uh, in my experience, we've had some carers whose um, partners have had to cease attending the choir due to um, either in some cases, sadly, um, they've passed away or they've gone into um, higher care and they're unable to attend. But in those cases, the carers have still attended, which is, you know, I think that speaks to the power mm. of the choir. And uh, it's been a really great source of support for people, um, you know, every week someone will come in with a story about something that's happened during the week and they'll be able to talk to someone else who's going through something similar. And of course, the progression of dementia, there's many different types of dementia um, and the progression is different for everyone as well and everyone will have different experiences. But they often talk about how important it is to come along and to talk to someone else who's going through that. And as you mentioned about the the impact of that being a next-of-kin carer as well and how some of our members have spoken about maybe they're caring for their partner or their parent and they have a sibling that isn't doing the direct care but that um, they don't quite understand that even though it's still their their parent as well but if they're not doing that direct care it's a very different experience Mm. so being able to come in and meet with people and talk about that experience together and um, I think a, a shared source of knowledge as well you know some people will have had particular treatments or tests done and they'll be able to talk um, to each other about how that went and what to expect and things like that and then of course the emotional support as well and just being around people that are going through the same thing. I mean how telling is that that some of the carers have kept coming to the choir yeah. even after the person they're caring for can no longer attend that, that just speaks volumes doesn't it? Absolutely yeah yeah now, I do want to leave time for us to play the piece of music that you've brought along. Yeah. And I also want to, um, before we do that, talk a little bit about the RCT, Randomised Control Trial, that's coming up in case anyone listening is interested in, in taking part. So what do we need to know? Absolutely. Well, we, we're in the process of recruiting participants now and we need a lot. We're hoping to recruit 180 pairs, so 180 people with dementia and 180 people who are caring for someone with dementia. And so the criteria is that you must be still living at home, so not in supported care at this stage, that you must speak English and be over 60 years old. So we are hoping to... Well, we're running seven different sites at the moment with possibly one more to come. The sites are based all around Melbourne and a couple of rural or... Sorry, I shouldn't say, shouldn't say rural, it's regional, I guess, um, and interstate sites as well. So our sites at the moment are Forest Hill, um, Kingsville... Noble Park, Hawthorne, 
Oh, I'm going to get these wrong. <laughs> I should have written them down. I can't I'm believe you just really went off the top of your head. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> There's my memory exercises. How's that music <laughs> yeah. helping me there? Um, we've got one in Bendigo and Hobart. And I think I'm missing one in there. Oh, no. If I'll remember, I'll pop it out. But good news is we have a Facebook page yes. and we can put all the details up on the Facebook page for anyone who's interested and wants to know more. But if, if someone is interested, there's still time to contact you. Um, Absolutely. Or not myself because I'm part of the research project and we need to go through a blind recruitment process. So yep. the best person to contact is Carol Fountain at Uniting Age Well, who are our research partners. And her Carol Fountain at Uniting Age Well. Yes. Yep. Can I give that the number? Please do. Yep. So it's 03 9251. 5997 or C.F. Fountain, so org, and we can pop that up too. We'll put that all on the Facebook yeah. page. Yep, fantastic. Zara Thompson, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, okay, we are going to change tack a bit now and as opposed to talking about dementia at the end of life and the benefits of music, Dr Malice, you've got a segment for us on the benefits of music at the very start of life. Well, what a beautiful way to bring this in from Zara's presentation at the other end of life. And it underlines that, in fact, music goes throughout the whole of the life cycle. It's not the other end. It's actually the continuity throughout life and, indeed, throughout generations. I mean, historically, 4,000 years ago, lullabies, for example, were documented to be sung back then in papyrus and various other documents. And so the question would be, that we start with, which I could ask, why do we think music is so universal uh, that babies and mums throughout the world have almost identical lullabies, despite their different culture, language, heritage and history? The lullaby has a basic structure. Why would we think that's so? Soothing. It's it it's, it's naturally yes. soothing yeah. and it pre-exists language as a communication yes yeah. and so why should that be soothing and before language a lullaby because you can hum it you don't actually have mm. to have the mm. rockabye baby you can yeah. actually hum it well basically because it mimics <laughs> it mimics the rhythm in the womb oh, oh i wouldn't have come up with that because there is the most fundamental rhythm in the womb which is the heartbeat of the mother mm. the breathing and from 24 weeks on, a fetus actually hears at 4,000 4, megahertz, which goes up to 20,000 for the birth and adult. And so, so there's already from 24 weeks onwards this constant internal rhythm of the heartbeat. And naturally it speeds up with a bit of excitement. It goes down with sleep when mum's sleeping, hopefully a very restful sleep through the whole night. And also the conversation that goes on between mum and whoever's around. And indeed, if mum's listening to music, that will offer its own vibrations. And there's some experiments that babies recognise which music they heard in the womb afterwards in preference to non-heard music. So it's an extraordinary, basic, soothing, innate... Uh, exactly, it's an innate rhythm. And one or a couple of people have actually said this is an acoustic bridge... Between, for the rest of our lives, between what we experienced internally in the womb and the external world with its noises and disjunctions and disharmonies. And so singing actually brings us back to our very core. An acoustic bridge. What a yeah. beautiful phrase. 
And acoustic is really one of the fundamental senses that we overlook. And in fact, people who are tragically given, you know, the question of which is the most fundamental sense you'd like to preserve, vision or hearing, many would actually preserve hearing, surprisingly, because it resonates to so many deeper places and language obviously would be lost, which is a fundamental communication. And so music is essentially a communication. And this is part of the reason I mentioned earlier that carers who are next of kin have got that acoustic bridge from even before birth. And so there the body is used as the platform from which to resonate. And it is no longer just what's audible outside with the voice and the harmony and so on but in fact the baby actually resonates in their body as does our whole body resonate when we sing and if you are with opera singers and you put their your hand on their chest you will feel the most incredible resonance going on because they're just bellows the two lungs and everything resonates to go get the air past the vocal cords now this being the case The question arises, so if it's soothing, what else does it do? Because it does a lot more. That's that's fundamental to get the baby to lull, hence lullaby, to go off to sleepy land. But it also gives some other profound quality to the carer. And that is, it often expresses the carer's mood. So a mum who's upset is unlikely to do tra-li-la-la, happy traveller, <laughs> but will do another more subdued lullaby as a way of sharing her mood state with the baby. And the next day when she's got an upbeat anniversary, birthday, whatever, she will go tra-li-la-la. So the baby's already introduced to mother's diurnal or, if you like, daily fluctuations in her mood expressed through the lullaby choice that she gives. And so it's an educational rhythmic acoustic bridge that isn't static, but like some bridges that you've got, lift bridges, you know, allow different things, ships of sizes, different sizes to pass through. So here we have already a relationship between mother and baby resonating and attuned. Now, this is in the ordinary situation. Now, Zara raised the question of what happens actually in the brain, because this I actually didn't know when I mentioned about my own experience with my dad seven, in 1995-67, the last few years of his life. This was not known. So this is actually all new knowledge in the last 20 or so years. And I discussed this with my mum, who was also a carer for my dad, Uh, We have different attitudes towards music. She is not really a singer as such, but she's an extraordinary carer. So there are many dimensions to caring in the relationship. However, the common factor between her and I caring for my father was that we didn't use much language. And so this is what has been the revolution in understanding what the brain does. That is to communicate from the right brain to the right brain. And lullabies are, in fact, pre-language. The words are there sort of for icing on the cake, they're dressing. But the main issue is the repetitive rhythmic harmony. And so all lullabies have this quality of repetition and usually very few words because it's not about getting the baby or the toddler into an encyclopedic knowledge of, hey, I can talk. In fact, they can't talk. 
And indeed, the first language in all our lives is a body language. And therefore, the baby and indeed anyone who later on is traumatised or somehow disadvantaged is resonating to these non-language centres. Now, why do I raise this? Because a new book has just come out, literally in the last month, called The Alan Shaw Reader, edited by a German psychoanalyst, Eva Rass, and it is uh, the mapping of what we now know on the course of development. The cover, which we can put up later, is actually of the uh, London Underground. And it has little puppet figures which highlight symbolically how, depending upon where we get on an underground train, determines in a large part where we're going to end up. However, it's not predetermined by fate. We can change stations at Waterloo and there's about four different endpoints depending on which one we change over to. And tellingly, the foreword for this amazing book is a preface by Sir Richard Bowlby. And that should ring a bell because he, of course, is the son of the famous John Bowlby. And he endorses the book extraordinarily graciously by saying that uh, Alan Shaw has often been called the American version of John Bowlby. (laughs) But now there's a question of whether he should be called the Einstein of development. Now, that's no small accolade, but it is not misplaced because Alan Shaw actually is at the forefront of the pioneering work on how we understand the brain works in extreme states as well as normal development. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking with Dr Malice about the importance of music and melody at the start of life for infants and about a new book that's just come out uh, that speaks to brain development at that age as well. And what this new book's message is that we have been thinking about music and stress and trauma and the reparative, therapeutic effect of music in a very outdated mode in the previous paradigms of understanding brain function. Essentially what he says is that the fundamental way we function is in fact pre- or subverbal. And this is what he emphasises, the right brain to right brain communication. Now, it happens in poetry, not through the words, but through the rhythm of the poem. It happens in music, not through the lyrics. Of course, that adds a little spice and flavour. But the basic essence, the ingredient, is the very stuff of the rhythm and the prosody. And prosody is, in fact, what mums all have innately. And so you don't need to train most mums. When their baby's upset, they will coo. They won't have a big lecture, come on, pucker up and get going. They'll say, oh, you poor little baby. Oh, that hurt. Give me the wow-wow. Oh, I'll kiss it better. And then, of course, (laughs) the gesture goes with it. And so it's the cooing and the gesture and the body language that the baby picks up on, which is repairing the wow-wow, the hurt. Mm. So we have really got a new way of now looking at understanding stress and upset and trauma for children and infants and indeed adults and dementia sufferers. That is not so much what we lack or what we hurt by, but what the carer offers to repair that state. And so he talks about the reparative moment and the reparative relationship. And this, of course, is what we take into the choir 
or in our therapy, hopefully we don't become leaden therapists, you know, just rolling out off-the-shelf interpretations. We're alive to the moment. We're there with the patients resonating. We're providing the acoustic bridge for their dissociations. But, of course, that's another story way outside the realm of choirs. And this is really the message that Alan Shaw's reader provides for the ordinary person. And the reason, just by the way, why a reader? Uh, as it's well known, if you've read Alan Shaw's, you don't really quite get it the first two dozen times you read it. <laughs> and hence, Eva Rass has provided this reader, which makes his life's work accessible and just so much sense. And so I recommend this, obviously, because it's, it's one of those great landmark books. Can you tell us the name of it once more? The Alan Shore, S-C-H-O-R-E Reader, Setting the Course in, of Development, edited by Eva Rass, R-A-S-S, published by Rutledge 2018. So it's hot off the press <laughs> and it is one incredible reader. Mm. Miss Medic. One of the things that came to mind when you were talking, Malice, was about my own experience as a mother and my my eldest child, who's now eight, on a day where she might have had a bit of a rocky day or, or um, you know, something emotional has happened, she'll often ask for this bedtime song that I used to sing to her as a baby yeah. as she's having a cuddle before she goes off to sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think that really speaks to how powerful that is, that connection to the song that I used to sing when she was an infant, which often she doesn't need now because she's a big girl with lots of other ways of soothing herself. But on a particularly hard day, she'd still ask for that song. What's the song? It's a twinkle, twinkle little star with some added verses. <laughs> come up with by myself because as many parents will know when you have a baby you don't often just sing it once no. and when you're singing it and you're still going we have several verses that are specific to my children well, it's <laughs> and specific I actually wrote to them you, yeah. specific to me and yeah. my kids and I actually wrote them all down a couple of years ago thinking I hope I never forget these added words to this song. Absolutely oh. now I would just add that is just such a heartwarming story isn't it? <laughs> That I would say, although, bless her, she's eight years old and you say she's got lots of other coping mechanisms, my guess is at 16, if she has a broken heart, she will still well. be your little baby and oh, will want Twinkle Twinkle. And when she's before her marriage, she will still want <laughs> mummy to sing Twinkle Twinkle. And when she in her time becomes a mum and you become a grandmum, Twinkle Twinkle be a family heritage. Yeah. Absolutely, and it's a very beautiful, beautiful thing. And, it, and you're right in that it came mm. very innately. It wasn't something that I yeah. thought about doing. It just happened and, mm. you know, it speaks to that very um, special connection that happened. that happens. special connection also can be likened to an emotional umbilical cord. Mm. Yeah. And really preserve that for the rest of your lives. It that's is just such a blessing. That's my intention. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I keep thinking about as I hear you talk as well, Dr. Malice. It's about those moments where we actually stop thinking, you know, our kind of that part of our brain is switched off and we're not trying to achieve something. We're not thinking our way through this dilemma and trying to fix it. We're just in the moment, in that felt sense. I think that's what music really helps mm. us tap into. And when it's shared, either with one person or in a choir, 
it is so much more than the sum of its parts. Mm. It takes it into transcendent places. I mean, whatever language you wish, whether it's meditative, transcendent, sacred, but I, I like the idea. That's a sacred mother-baby space. Mm. Thank you for that beautiful segment. I feel like uh, all our conversations today are, are linking in so well and... Before we go today, uh, there's one more thing that we want to tell you about. Uh, in preparation for our show that's in one month's time for t- from today, so the show that's going to air on Sunday the 18th of March, I think it is, and I guess it speaks to this concept again of being in the moment, doesn't it? Absolutely. So we're lucky enough to have Dr Elise Bailey-Lou, who's the founder of Mindfully May, coming in for that show. Now, she has a new book out called The Happiness Plan, and we've been fortunately gifted with a couple of copies of that book, which Dr Autonomy and myself, Miss Medic, are going to read through over the next month. It's actually provides a one-month mindfulness guide for you and we just thought we'd throw it out there that you might if you happen to have the book or planning on purchasing it or want to take a look it's the happiness plan by dr elise bailey lou just come out hasn't just it? come out um and you might want to join us on this one month of mindfulness and we'll get to talk to to uh, dr elise herself and discuss just how far we got with our one month of mindfulness and she used to be a doctor didn't she and she I think left she's medicine a doctor and trained, <laughs> doctor trained in psychiatry or doing right, psychiatry yeah. training with um a, you know strong interest in mindfulness so i, I thought stuff. she had already practiced psychiatry for some years but anyhow we will we'll clarify with yeah. her <laughs> one month's time so yeah we'll be talking all about it on the show on sunday 18th of march but we have to get going because there is a room full of scientists ready to bring you another hour of fascinating topics with Einstein and Gogo. Also, thank you to Marinara for that beautiful hour before us and Tim Thorpe, which uh, was spectacular this morning. Zara Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. Dr Malice, always a pleasure. Miss Medic, thank you so much. Well, Radiotherapy will be back again next week at 10am. And for any more details on that book that we were speaking about or the RCT, check out our Facebook page, Radiotherapy. And we'll chat to you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.